so the, the theme of our practicing together this weekend um, is really about being able to experience a little bit of space and ease, peacefulness, uh, not by arrangement, not by skillful management of all the various pieces of our lives, but in a, uh, a more subtle sense, uh, within our hearts and minds and bodies, right? uh, to get in touch with what is there in such a way that we can feel okay. Really having It's not to be uh, without suffering. It's not a place uh, in us where there isn't any pain. Uh, but it's that capacity that we have that we might be able to grow, capacity to grow inside ourselves um, that can embrace, can have a space for suffering and happiness. Uh, in Buddhism, this is often referred to as a, the practice of upeksha, uh, Sanskrit word, upeksha, U-P-E-K-S-H-A, upeksha, if you're going to write it in English. Upeka in Pali. And uh, the common translation of upeksha is equanimity. Uh, but it, equanimity is just one way of expressing upeksha. When you really dive into the teachings of Upaksha, they're really like there's like ten different kinds of Upaksha in, in Buddhism in the commentaries on it. Um, and uh, maybe tomorrow we'll get there, but they're really like, yeah, it's a lot for a short retreat. Um, sometimes we think of this capacity as the, the capacity to be even-minded. You may have heard that expression, even even-mindedness. Uh, when something pulls you one way or something pulls you another, being able to have an even mind with it, even-mindedness. Often that's uh, the sense of like the style of Vipassana meditation, uh, really to be able to see whatever comes up in the mind with a sense of equanimity, to be even, even-minded in it, whether you like it or don't like it, right? just right? even-minded. Uh, there's a quality of balance in Upeksha. Mm, things are in uh, proportion or in ratio with one another in such a way that we experience uh, balance. Mm. There's also the, the quality of uh, inclusiveness. And this is one that Thai 
Thầy Thích Nhạt Hàn uh, spoke a lot about inclusiveness. And uh, it speaks to the gesture that I already mentioned um, uh, for dropping into concentration as well, right? Uh, which is not by force of will, um, not by strong, hardened, willful determination, but by relaxing and releasing, right? Including things in our experience rather than excluding them in order to get somewhere. Including them, uh, that inclusiveness. In the Upaksha, there's also the quality of, uh, because of, of, of the, this inclusiveness of letting go, right? Not, not holding on to one thing or another. Also an even-mindedness, not, not holding on to one aspect versus another, right? Being able to release and let go. So you see in those words, inclusiveness, even-mindedness, letting go, equanimity, I begin to have a feeling for what is meant by upeksha. And of course, if we're practicing those things, there's a fruit in there which is very easily tasteable, the freedom, right? <laughs> freedom and spaciousness uh, are, are a, an, an immediate result of this kind of practice. So the word upeksha uh, Upa um, means uh, uh, upon or over. It's kind of prepositional. And iksh, this, word, this, this root of the iksha, part of upeksha, iksh, is to look or to regard, to look over, to look upon, to regard, to see. Right? It's a, it's a very nice word. <laughs> And, and it, it, it's speaking to that, that sense of having that perspective, right? But in order to have that, we can't be caught. We have to, we have, to have a sense of um, mindfulness happening. We have to be able to be here in order to see and to understand ourselves and each other a little bit in order to experience uh, anything to do with upeksha. And that, that, uh, Again, that ex oppression, and I'd like to paint a little more of a picture there. It's not one of management. Oh, you know management, right? We're all managers. <laughs> Life is so complex and fast-moving that we are all be constantly training ourselves in how to manage all these things. It's not uh, about controlling. Paksha is not about controlling. And that can be a little bit scary sometimes, because often we would like to manage, to control, even to manipulate ourselves, our life, the conditions in ourself and in our life, you know, in order to feel safe. Uh, and this is asking us to take a slightly different approach toward the experience of safety. Uh, not that we should just let everything go blah in whatever direction, but the energy of management of control, uh, of trying to figure things out, is one of the grasping mind. And the grasping mind is always going to take us away from the flow and the experience of life, the impermanence of the moment, and how it moves and changes its reality. 
Your grasping mind is going to try to take that flow and lock it up into little ideas, little impressions. And then we, if we stay with that, we're, we're removed from the actual experience of being a part of life. And so this technique is the, the, not the suppression or the oppression of things. It's not the control and the, and the management. It's not the force of our will. Uh, although we do need to be determined <laughs> to go in this direction, it's not a forceful will. It's a soft will. And so we relax into the spaciousness. We relax into our own capacity to be present and to include the inclusion. Uh, sometimes I like to think of it as a, it's, it's, I'm trying, I'm practicing in a way so as to have a lot of love that has a lot of space in it. Right? So I'm including, I'm respecting, I'm caring for, I'm honoring what is there, I'm loving it, but I'm doing it with a lot of space. So my dog, she's the big dog. She's the 85-pound Malamute. And she's really beautiful and really fun and very lively. Uh, I shouldn't say my. It's our family, our family dog. And uh, uh, I love her a lot. Um, but there are some things about her which are a little bit difficult for me. Um, one is that she's very, really fascinated with porcupines. And, um, we just so happen to have a very healthy, strong porcupine population on our hill here at Morning Sun. <laughs> um, so it's made sort of having her off leash and free running um, a little bit tricky. And then to complicate that, the porcupines. I don't know if any of you have really ever spent time with porcupines. They're really, they're carefree. Like they just kind of waddle right up to you. They're interested in whatever they're interested in and they just go and they're like, oh, you're there? Okay, well, I'm here, you know? And, and, they, and they kind of meander through, they, they'll come right up to our house and wander around sniffing for this, for that trying to get to the compost pile or something like that. And so this, of course, drives our dog bananas. Um, and three times in the last four years, her interactions, she's only four, her interactions with porcupines have brought her to the vet. And each one of those visits to the vet costs quite a bit um, because she has to be sedated to have the quills removed and all that. So. So there's a, um, a stressful place in me associated with this behavior. <laughs> Not just the, the, the sort of the logistics of having the funds available and getting all that set up so I can know that I can take care of her if she meets the porcupine, but it's, it's the suffering that's involved in that too. She's in a lot of pain. The last time she, she got some quills in her, in her nose, um, it was in the middle of the night and we decided to wait until the morning, but she couldn't wait till the morning. She was in a lot of pain. And she's like, we came up on the bed and she's just sort of looking at whimpering, like, come on, you gotta take care of me. And, and uh, so there's a lot, a lot there, a lot of uh, embracing of a difficult moment when this happens. 
So when I see a porcupine and my dog is there and she's off leash, there's a reaction in me because I do not want them to connect. Right? And that reaction comes up. I want to yell. I want to shout. I want to say, stop. No, no, no. Kira, Kira, no. Come, come. I want her to control herself and come back and not try to chase this thing. But when I do that, she thinks I'm excited about the porcupine and she wants to help me corner it. So I'll get right up close to where they are and she'll go to the other side of the porcupine to try to bring it to me. Right? Because of my excitement, I'm, I'm going, I'm, this is a big deal. We've got to catch this thing. Right? And she'll work like, and then I can't get her. All I want is a hand on her so that I can pull her away. But she'll stay away because she thinks she's supposed to help me corner it. It's really just a very frustrating situation. Um, but I have discovered, and just two nights ago this worked, I have discovered that if I don't get excited, if I stay relaxed, if I stay at ease in that moment, uh, there's a much better chance that she'll respond to me and, and listen to me. So the last time, just two nights ago, we were just walking from the neighbor's house home and she took off and there was a porcupine right outside my son's bedroom window, just right there. And she ran up to it, she started barking right at it and it started flicking itself around trying to defend itself. And my initial reaction was, no, Kira, come. I wanted to shut. And I, I stopped myself. I said, no, Mike, wait. Try this again. And I literally took deep breaths as I walked over. And I said, Kira, Kira, in a really sweet voice, come. Come on, sweetie. Come on. We're not going to chase a porcupine right now. And she softened up with me. And I was able to get a hand on her really quick and just pull her away. Right? Uh, so this is like, <laughs> it's not this force of will. I'm going to make this happen. But I'm going to... Uh, understand, right, and calm myself down and relax and let go and come in and, and just be present with what I need to be present with. Because that energy in me, that control, that clamp down, suffering is not okay, right? That's, that's what's happening in me. It's not really about porcupine or my dog. It's about an ancestral habit energy in me, which says suffering is not okay. I don't want that experience. I will not include that, right? Uh, so this, this, uh, these little moments in my life help me see that energy, that energy that wants to come up and be so frustrated and so um, upset about uh, conditions that are hard, that are challenging, that are painful, or that are potentially hard and challenging and painful. Um, I think all parents, maybe everybody knows that feeling, but like out of some place in you that, that that's really not where you'd like to come from, you just start coming from there in order to like say, no, this behavior is not okay, right? It just that, that energy comes up. It's a transmission from our ancestors of suffering is painful, don't let it happen, right? And there's something to that, right? <laughs> It's like it is painful and it can really mess things up and, and it would be nice if we can avoid as much of it as possible. But somehow that physiological and spiritual response, that inner response and that bodily response of tension and stress usually doesn't help very much. 
Love with a lot of space in it. You know, I don't hate porcupines. They're awesome. They're cute. They're really neat creatures. You know, and my dog is fascinated by them. It's not like she wants to kill it. She's she's fascinated by it. And so there's there's a, there there is the possibility of coexisting is there, right? And <laughs> finding ways. But the reaction in me is not that. The reaction in me is shut it down. Right. Unfortunately, when that happens, right, when I, when I shut down in that way, um, actually for all of us, it's like that, even sort of biochemically in us, when we shut down like that, we close off the part of ourselves which knows how to connect, empathy, right? It shuts that whole process down, you know. Um, it's a defense mechanism. It's meant to save us, but when we don't really need saving, it just disconnects us. Um, yeah. Mm, so I'm going to try to share a little bit in this Dharma talk through the lens of the Four Noble Truths, a couple of things about spacious love. Um, the Four Noble Truths were the first teaching that the Buddha gave after his awakening, according to our Buddhist history. The Four Noble Truths are noble because they are a path of awareness. They're a beautiful way. Uh, they can be a kind of lens through which you just look at everything, if you want to do that analytically. But that, that wouldn't be noble truths. That would be like four truths. <laughs> they become noble because we're really um, going to hold deeply in our awareness and our experience what they mean, not, not as a, a theory about life, but as a practice of how to meet a moment of our life, how to meet any particular moment of our life. The truth is that uh, there is the possibility, the possibility of suffering, the possibility that the potential for uh, suffering in whatever moment, situation, relationship, experience we're having. The second is that there are reasons why that suffering is there, right? So there's the suffering and there are causes of the suffering. The roots of the suffering are some of those causes. Conditions in our daily life might be some of those causes, right? But there's reasons why the experience of suffering is there. It's not just a thing. It's a thing that comes from somewhere or from many places. Right? So it's already we have an awareness of and an understanding of suffering. 
right? That's just, this is why it's, it can be considered noble. It's a practice of entering into a, an experience and relationship of, right? So we have, so we have our suffering and we are, um, we are understanding that there are causes of our suffering. Just like a, a, a tree, uh, a tree that is growing and living in the world, right? There are many things that come together to make the life of that tree possible. Uh, nutrients in the soil, in the air, in the water, the rain, the cloud, and the knowledge, the wisdom of the tree and its ancestors of how to grow, right? All of these things come together and make the tree possible. Our suffering is like that. Our suffering, every, every aspect of our suffering has, has its causes and many causes. And some of them are really old, ancient roots. And then on the other half of the Four Noble Truths, the third one is um, literally the, the, the end of or the cessation of suffering, which we can also just say is like well-being <laughs> or happiness, right? The, the, non, the experience of not suffering is the third. And the fourth is the way to help build or support or grow that experience of well-being and not suffering, the path of well-being. Right? So on the one hand, suffering and its causes, and on the other hand, well-being and its causes. Right? And taken with awareness and understanding, right? one shows the other also. One half shows the other half. When I, this is something that I would say many times a year, when we understand how our suffering has come to be, we know what to do and what not to do in order to change the situation, in order to experience well-being. Well, what we do and don't do in order to experience well-being is well-being and its causes. Right? So, the one shows the other, and vice versa as well, right? Our, our well-being and the way that we maintain our well-being shows us what to do and not to do, right, <laughs> around suffering. So it's really one, one whole package, right? We can't, we can't separate out one of the noble truths from the other noble truths. If they're gonna be noble, they're all there together. And that's that picture picture of, of a moment of practice for us. Practicing to include all these aspects of each moment. And in this moment of my life, there are things, there are, there are experiences of, of suffering and there are experiences of well-being. I include both, right? And I'm aware that there are causes of my suffering and causes of my well-being, and I, I hold them all, right? Not just Kind of focus on, gosh, this is so hard, and I just need to figure this out. We also need to cultivate the well-being. And I'm not just going to say, oh, my life is so great and happy and everything like that, because there are, and ignore the suffering, because the suffering is there, and it has its causes. And the two, the more we practice with them, these two halves, we see that they, they actually make each other. They're deeply, deeply interwoven. Mm. 
So love with a lot of space for it, being able to care for all these different aspects of our experience in our daily life, our suffering, our well-being, and being able to care for it with a lot of space, a lot of understanding. Uh, one way that we talk about this is um, they, the, those two halves are kind of like two arms of our practice. And I know many of you have heard me say that before. The two arms of our practice, which is different from when Tai teaches about two wings of meditation, right? <laughs> two wings on the bird. It's not that. The two arms of practice, right? And this is an image of the Four Noble Truths. On the one hand, being able to cultivate and nourish wholesome experiences of life. And on the other hand, being able to embrace and calm and understand the suffering. Yeah. Two arms. Mm. So last night when I introduced those three breathings, um, they were really uh, very simple, but very important, profound. Um, they point to very profound and important part of these practices, and they lean towards the side of nourishing the well-being a little bit, right? I'm emphasizing that. And uh, I really think there's a need for us to emphasize that because we are really skillful as a species at paying attention to what's hard, paying attention to our suffering. Uh, we're really good at that. Uh, so good that, that that we actually really have, like, like think about like positive news publications in the world, right? There, there's just a few of them. They are there, right? The good news. It, it, there, there are like, there's, there's like shared among the masses of human beings. There's a little bit of that, but it's just a little compared to all the other stuff that we would skillfully share about, which is suffering. Right? So it's really helpful to emphasize that taking care of what is uh, nourishing, what is beautiful, what is healing, and really focus on that. Mm. It gives us a strength, and it gives us a um, some energy in order to do this good work of holding the suffering also. Yeah. If we're going to embrace suffering, we need something to embrace it with. Uh, so the encouragement is there from our teachers and our ancestors to, to build into the rhythms of our practice and our daily life moments of joy, moments of nourishment, healing, moments of, of letting go of the stress. layers and layers of stress stored up in different ways in our hearts, minds, and our bodies. And everything that we can do to release those layers on a daily basis right, is creating space and capacity to do this loving work of caring for suffering. Hmm. Tonight, uh, during the Q&A, I hope that there are some songs and poems to be shared. And the way we build that in, into our retreats and our Sangha experiences is very intentional and specifically for the purpose of this remembering how wonderful it is to be alive, 
the joy of connecting, of, of singing, of hearing each other's insights, right? and, and all these wonderful, wholesome experiences that we can have. We, we really try to make those um, apparent and, and have opportunities to connect through them. Mm. Well, that's that one arm of the practice. This other arm of the practice that is about embracing and understanding the suffering uh, often comes up in the form of uh, uh, our reactivity. We react emotionally throughout, throughout the day to various things that are happening. And the emotions come up and sort of take over the, the experience that we're having. And we may feel some stress, some frustration, some pain uh, through, through strong emotions and reactivity in us. Uh, and so our practice is to, to breathe with those moments. This is suffering. And it needs our care and attention, especially if we'd like to understand where it comes from. We have to enter into relationship with it. We can't just ignore it. We can't just let these emotions run around. We have to be with ourselves, right? And, and connect with ourselves. These energies which are coming up from where, right? You know, yes, someone said something or we read something or encountered something around us in the world which touched that suffering inside and that suffering is now up in us. It's not out there in the world. That experience is within us. And we need to be in relationship with ourselves. So we do that very loving, kind work of breathing with our pain, breathing with our suffering, holding it in awareness, like it's a little child, like it's a baby that's crying. You know? If you've been suffering a lot in your daily life, feeling strong emotions coming up, Right? This is work that must be done. You can't skip this. These emotions are signs. You're saying, hey, over here, this is where it hurts. Right? Something's under here. Something's inside here. And it needs you. Right? So we do that breathing, that opening of a space to accept that that is what we're experiencing. Right? It's not necessarily to accept the situation that causes us suffering, but to accept that we are in that experience. Right? So it's not one of just, you know, not doing anything about my suffering. That's that's not the approach. It's I am it's quite quite the opposite. I am gonna be present with my suffering. I'm going to make a space and acknowledge to myself that yes, I'm hurting right now. Yes, I'm frightened right now. Yes, I'm sad right now. Yes, I'm very angry right now. And I'm going to try to breathe with that feeling and get to know it a little bit. And if I'm doing that, immediately something marvelous has happened. Mindfulness of the suffering puts us in relationship to it. Before we're mindful of it, 
that flower of suffering, that plant of suffering, that tree of suffering has just sprung up and taken over the whole landscape of our experience. Right? The moment we are mindful of it, something else is also there, our mindfulness. Right? So we are now not only our suffering, we are also our practice. We are also aware. And that's what's doing the energy. Uh, sorry, doing the embrace is the energy of holding in awareness. Mm. The conscious breathing can be a, a ground in the physical body and the present moment for that, which is really helpful. Putting hands on our belly to draw the energy down from the head and the mental agitation of the suffering and get down into the felt experience. I love belly breathing. Belly breathing is super, super helpful for me in helping me sort of draw myself out of my my mental reactivity, which drives the suffering forward, which escalates it. And I want to calm that down. And I'm more than my suffering in that moment. And I'm bringing in my kindness, my inclusiveness of my experience, this part of me which I'm previously unwilling to accept. I don't want this. But now I'm going to say, okay, I'll be with you. I let go of my managing and my figuring out. And Okay, I'll just be with what's here. I need to be with what's here. This is what I'm going through. Right? I'm more than my suffering, but I'm bringing my kindness, my inclusiveness, my patience, my strength, my love to me, to me. For most of us, it's really easy to do that with someone else who's having a hard time, right? We're just very quick to jump up with that. Mm, I, will, I will support you. I will hold your hand. I will give you a hug. I will listen to you, right? But when it's our own suffering in our own heart, we kind of like, oh, yeah, I'll just get through it. It's not important. <laughs> it's more important that I'm attentive to other people right now, that I manage and figure out my life right now. But this, this experience of learning to be with our strong emotions integrates us with ourselves, gives us a tremendous amount of power. Tremendous amount of power. We are no longer a victim of a situation in the world or in a relationship. We are now the participant and the co-creator of the experience inside our own hearts, inside our own minds and bodies. I can do this. I've got you now. These are things I say to myself when I'm suffering. I've got you now. Yes, I wasn't paying attention before, but I've got you now. And there's, there's a little boy in me who needs to hear that, I've discovered. Yeah. Needs to know that. Mm. So, the human being is wired to suffer, you know, and, and to suffer well. We know that we're very skillful, we easily pay attention to suffering. It's, it's just a deep, deep ancient habit energy. It's in our um, physiology, it's in our neurology, it's in everything in us, right? To protect ourselves from threats. But we are also wired to heal. We have also the capacity to calm down. We have, we have the capacity to heal. Mm. 
sometimes when I'm wanting to hold my suffering and it seems like it's too much, uh, I do this practice of calling on my ancestors to help me. And in this case, my ancestors are uh, both um, my blood genetic ancestors uh, and my spiritual ancestors. Uh, I call on them. I ask them, this is really hard to be in touch with this part of me right now. I actually really want to run away from it. Can you help? Please help me. Please help me. My ancestors are here, right? I, I know it sounds a little bit kind of strange in a way because we're so keyed into materialism. But the reality, even in the materialism, is that our ancestors are very present in the cells of our body. And they're certainly present in our emotional life, in our habit energies, and also in our, our um, inner capacities of awareness and kindness and strength and respect and patience. Right? All of these things are connected to the experiences of our ancestors. We are the continuation of their transmission us right so they're all here and i really experience that my ancestors love it when i ask them to help me and i really do feel my capacity to heal to hold to calm myself down invigorated by calling on them especially when i call on my spiritual ancestors who are so good at this like tai tai Help me out here. Help me out here. Be present. Help me hold this moment. Tai is someone who went through the greatest hells that human beings can create for each other all through the early part of his life. War and violence, tearing apart family and society generation after generation as he grew up. Right? And he came through not bitter, <laughs> not resentful, but wise and full of compassion with a huge capacity to hold suffering. And so I call on that capacity because he has shared and taught with me these techniques, right? Tai helped me do this breathing, this breathing you taught me to do, right? I kind of, instead of trying to do it all myself again, right, not manage, not control, right, allow the capacities for healing, for presence that are in me, that, have, that are being transmitted by ancestors, allow them to do the work. You know, when I invite the bell, the bell here, when I invite the bell, um, I very often don't feel quite worthy to invite the bell like i'm a little distracted you know like the bell god is like body speech and mind in perfect 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 oneness like no margin for error so are you really all there you're like gonna invite the bell and you go body speech and mind in perfect oneness and immediately that little part of us the judges goes you're not all there and you know it you're a little nervous you're a little distracted right 
And, and so we have doubt, you know, and that's often the case. That's all right. That's the moment where I say, Tai, can you do this for me? <laughs> Invite the bell for me, please, Tai. And sometimes I even find myself closing my eyes and then inviting the bell. I don't even know if I'm going to get it right. Every time it works. I don't recommend that you just close your eyes and swing the inviter <laughs> necessarily. But sometimes I notice that I've done that, right? As I, as I wake up the bell, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not all here. I need a little help. Ty, will you invite this for me? And then I, I do it, and I let, I let my spiritual ancestors invite the bell through my body for me. Yeah. It makes it so much easier. And they're so happy to help. Yeah. Have a little faith, a little trust in the, the, the true depth and beauty of who you are. Right? You are the continuation of the many incredible and wondrous beings. Right? We can let that happen. Mm. Hmm. In, out, deep, slow, calm, ease, smile, release, present moment, wonderful moment. It sounds like a little children's song. In, out, deep, slow, calm, ease, smile, Present moment, wonderful moment. Sounds very simple, doesn't it? It's based on the sutra on awareness of breathing. In, out, deep. Slow, being aware of the breath and whether the breath is moving short or long or deep or slow, calming, easing, smiling, releasing. When I'm holding a strong emotion, I'm bringing my breath and this calm, clear, loving energy and that of my ancestors, calm, bringing ease inviting that calm, inviting that ease, smiling with love and spaciousness to my pain, releasing anything that needs to be released, maybe in tears, maybe in tension, maybe just in mental agitation and letting it calm down. This is not baby practice. This is advanced applied neuropsychology. And I'm not kidding, it is. This is perfectly tuned to how our physiological, neurological processes work in order to calm down and heal. It's the basis, right? It's the ground. Mm. Learning how to not suffer is not complicated. This capacity lives in us. Learning the way of well-being and the freedom from suffering, those noble truths, it's not something far out there that you have to get a degree in in order to 
in, out, deep, slow, calm, ease, smile, release, <laughs> present moment, wonderful moment. Yeah. But we've got to do it. We've got to do it. I don't think we're doing it very well. And we got to do it. We got to really give ourselves the time and energy and space to do it. Mm. Remember that disconnect, that disconnect which is in us. When tension arises inside of us, when stress arises inside of us, it turns off our capacity to connect, to empathize. I'll bet you that most of us on this retreat, and well, anybody who's been like sort of active in the world to some extent in the last couple of years, has had our buttons pushed like hugely. There's a lot of stress in us, a lot of tension in us. And when that stress and tension is active, that, that fight flight energy is produced in us, in our bodies and in our minds, there's no empathy, there's no connecting, right? We have to disarm. We have to release and let it go to, I've been calling it stress down. I got to stress down. <laughs> that comes because I was seeing my saying to myself, I'm really getting stressed up. I'm up in the stress, right? Paying attention to this, trying to figure that out, doing all these things like and super agitated about like old sufferings in my childhood. Like there's a war in Ukraine and like the, 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 the quiet trauma of being a child growing up in the Cold War is what has been woken up in me, fear, right? And now it's on the people talking about it all over the place, right? You know, nuclear weapons, right? What does that do to you if you grew up as a child? Like, and around you, the world was just, that's what it was. It was in this tense standoff around weapons of mass destruction, right? I grew up, my grandfather gave me a picture book of, what was it, like, cars and trucks and boats and planes. And in it was a two-page spread of all the U.S. arsenal, all the pictures of all the different kinds of nuclear missiles that we have in the United States. And flip the page, and there they all were for the USSR, right? That was the kind of thing that you're, oh, this is just the way the world is, right? And then having that shift over the course of my life, right? And then suddenly it's back, that, that, that fear can, can rise up inside, right? There's all these layers of stress and tension and fear and anxiety coursing around through us. All these triggers happening. And that fight or flight energy is produced inside our bodies and minds. Mm, that's like stress up. <laughs> so I've been saying to myself that every day I need to have moments where I stress down. Right? Stress down. I have to acknowledge to myself, accept in myself that I am suffering in certain places, and then go to places that are refuge for me, go to places that are supportive for me. Maybe it's a walk by the, by the brook or in the forest. Maybe it's tea. Maybe it's just sit with my, my wife and really connect. Maybe it's sitting meditation with my sangha, right? I really need to let that take the armor off, right? Little by little, let these layers of stress and tension come off so that I'm integrated with me, 
And I can have that relationship with me, honest, open, caring. And I can feel what I need to feel, and that's okay. And I've got arms of practice to hold it. The triggers may be outside of us in our daily life, in our relationships, in, our, in the news about the world. But this event of suffering is physiologically and mentally inside us. And we have a lot of power there. Each one of us has a tremendous amount of influence in this space here. Right? And through that, we are bringing something into the world. We're bringing our mindfulness, our healing. Our ancestors are getting the opportunity to live through us into this stress and tension in a way they never were able to. Because if they were able to, we never would have inherited it. Right? So here it is, them moving through us in all the ways that they do. The deep roots of suffering from stories and generations past, but now very personal and contemporary for me. Right? I'm holding that. I'm giving myself and my ancestors, our ancestors, an opportunity to be at peace right now and to unlock their hearts, to connect again. Yeah, I'm going to put on original sound for a second so I can invite the sound of the bell here. And yes, I am inviting Tai to invite the bell with me. So I'd like to shift a little bit um, to another way of seeing the Four Noble Truths from the two arms of practice to, uh, to, to the lens of capacity. Hmm. There's a few images which help us, uh, help me connect with uh, the idea of practice as capacity. And this capacity being, you know, do I am I able to have the love with a lot of space in it, right? Can I do I have that right now? Uh, two glasses of water. Two glasses of water, and one is full, and the other one is also full. Nice, we have two glasses of water. But what happens if you want to pour one of those into the other? 
right? It will make a big mess. There's no space. No space. No capacity to hold anymore. It's full, right? But if one of those glasses were half full or empty, there's a space to pour from the from the other one, right? Very simple like that. Let's see it. Okay. Is there space to receive something? Is there space in my heart and my mind to receive something? Do you find yourself lately being reactive around, especially people that you're close to, right? And a little bit full, overfull, overwhelmed, right? That is a sign that there is very little capacity left, if any, that you're full. Right. You can hold something, but you've already got it full of something. <laughs> so there's not, no room for anything new. Yeah. Two glasses, one pouring to the other. And basically all day long we are like glasses of water, of varying fullness or emptiness. Uh, no, come on, don't, don't do it, Rowan. And, Greg, don't, don't go into emptiness here. I'm not talking about that emptiness. Um, I, was, they, they, I know they're trying to prep a stump the chump question for tonight. So um, This is different emptiness. This is uh, empty of water, right? And we're all like that. A little bit full or a little bit empty. Maybe totally full, maybe totally empty. Walking around and pouring water in each other's cups <laughs> and receiving water from other people's cups. That's basically what's happening all day long in terms of capacity. Mm. I know lately that my capacity has often been very small, that my cup's been very full. I know that because I see that like, I can't take in too much and if I even though I want to, I'm aware, like, I don't even know if I can do that, right? I, can, I, can I, someone says, I, yeah, can we go for a, a, a short walk? I need to talk some things with you. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I've got 10 minutes to go for a walk. Damn, how busy am I? How overwhelmed am I, right? Uh, that I'm avoiding interactions and things, right? Because I feel so full. Uh, capacity. So the Buddha gave an image of capacity um, as uh, like this. You take a fistful of salt and drop it in the glass of water. And right away, that glass of water, oh, it's undrinkable. You can't drink that. It's too much salt. Right? But if you take that same fistful of salt, and you dropped it in the great river. The water's fine. You can drink it. Right? Because the capacity of the river to handle that salt, right? To have that, that fistful of salt in it, it's huge. The capacity of the glass and its small amount of water to handle that same amount of salt is not the same. Right? So our practice is to grow our capacity. To grow our capacity so that it is more like the river. We can interact with one another and with situations in the world with a lot of space, with a lot of capacity. So 
that's on the one hand, this encouragement to, to be in touch with things and to keep your heart open and move through life with this open heart and this clear, clear mind and to encounter things. And when suffering comes, like to be able to have the space to receive it, right? When someone comes to you who needs to share their suffering and they need that listening ear to be able to be spacious and present enough to listen to them and to hear them. That's the encouragement we get. Like, keep stretching and growing the capacity. Uh, and when you find yourself full, you know, practice to empty and create more space. And there's a, an image that goes on the other side of that, that invitation to, to grow and expand our capacity is like to also know your limit <laughs> and not to try to take on something you can't take on because you'll just be uh, overwhelmed by it, burdened, crushed, or even hurt or injured by it. And the Buddha's uh, lesson there was, he said, you know, if, if you're walking down the village street and suddenly a raging elephant comes charging towards you down the street, get out of the way. Like, get out of the way. If you stay there, you'll be trampled, right? So get out of the way. And I like to add to that this idea of, okay, so get out of the way and recognizing that the elephant is dangerous, organize the villagers in order to uh, subdue and contain it so it doesn't cause too much harm. I think that's actually an important part when we're looking at suffering, especially around the collective aspects of suffering. There may be someone's behavior which is like that raging elephant, but it isn't just in relationship to us, right? It could be in relationship to many people or many beings. And we need to organize in such a way that we can help calm and subdue that raging elephant. Not to punish it, but to calm it down so it doesn't cause that, that harm as it rages around. Yeah. So um, that's on the flip side. Like we, we grow our capacity, but we also need to recognize where we have not enough capacity and let's not get trampled. Um, many of us know uh, and have experienced, unfortunately, situations where there was so much suffering directed at us that we experienced uh, a lot of wounding and trauma. And that, that those are moments where, um, if possible, we want ourselves to, to, to protect ourselves, but also to help protect others from those kinds of experiences. Let's get, get out of the way of the raging elephant. And then look at it, hold it collectively, try to bring it in. Um, the Buddha was also kind of, it's kind of funny because there's a, that, that's a teaching he gave, but he also, uh, there's a teaching about him when there was a charging elephant, a raging angry elephant, that he stayed in the street. <laughs> He stayed there and he held out his hand and he was able to meet her where she needed to be met and help her to calm down. But Buddha knew that he had the capacity to do that, right? Uh, so, please be careful. Like, be like the Buddha, increase your capacity, but maybe don't always be like the Buddha. <laughs> Get out of the way sometimes. Uh, we have to be intelligent. We have to know ourselves a little bit. We have to be in touch with ourselves 
in order to, to, to do this. We have to know what our capacity is, have our feelers down in that, in that space to know how full is our cup and what's coming towards us. Is that going to fit, right? <laughs> Can I, do I have enough for that? Mm. An example of this in practice is, is when you have a conflict with someone and you're going to practice beginning anew. Uh, and sometimes there are situations when you're practicing beginning anew with another practitioner especially, and you both know the practice and you can be like, okay, let's, let's get together and let's have that beginning anew. And you, you feel comfortable with that. And then there are other situations where you're like, you know, I think I'd like to have a mediator, a third person or a fourth person Maybe we could each bring someone to that beginning anew so that there is the presence of a friend for you and a friend for me there also to help in holding that space and doing that deep listening and sharing that beginning anew asks for, right? So you're, you recognize that your capacity isn't great enough to do this on your own. So you organize the village, in the sense other practitioners, to be there and support that process. Right? And we can lean on each other's capacity. Like I lean on Pai to invite the bell and I ask him to support me. And his capacity of bell inviting is wonderful. And I, and I like to let him do it. <laughs> it's a lot easier. The Sangha can be a huge support in terms of our capacity. So there's a couple of things that make capacity work. Um, and I may have shared this with you last year, or I'm not sure, or last time we, we, we were connecting. Um, but this image of a pond here at Morning Sun, we have, these, we have a bunch of beautiful ponds. One of them is a, a blueberry pond, is our big one. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we, we were challenged with trying to keep our practice going, but also... Um, honoring the anxiety and the fear that the, the virus was bringing and um, and the practicing what we understood at that time to be safe, safety, right? We were all doing that all around the world. And here at Morning Sun, we live close together, but we were still very cautious with one another because we all have different niches in our lives, different sets of relationships and different people that we ourselves or others that we need to protect in our in our cohorts and our group our, our families and so uh, we tried these really bold experiments with doing like sitting meditations outside and we were in the snow in a big circle out in the snow doing sitting meditation and things like that and eventually we discovered that moving practice was a lot easier than still practice in the cold and so we would go for long walks we went for long walking meditations and then the snow melted and on one of those meditations I observed all these streams of snow melt flowing through the forest down and filling the pond. I mean the pond was already pretty full but they're, they're, they're helping to fill the pond and I saw that and I was like oh this is like an image of daily practice. It's an image of like me practicing conscious breathing and walking meditation to nourish my capacity. Here, this, this reservoir of, of practice, this capacity I want to nourish in myself, to have an open, spacious heart, to have a lot of understanding, to be able to perceive with these four beautiful eyes of the Four Noble Truths, right? 
I need that capacity. And I could see the image of it in the, the little rivulets of water moving through the forest and filling up the pond. And as I sat there and watched the pond for a while, happy, holding that image, feeling it, being really grateful that I have the practice in my life, that I have community of practice in my life that can help support nourishing that capacity. I saw also the beaver lodges and I was aware of the beaver dams on the pond. I said, oh, right. The beavers are also helping in this process. Right? They're out there maintaining these fragile edges, creating these dams which hold the water in. Right? And, and they're driven by it. The, the sound of flowing water makes beavers work all night long. They just can't stop to help themselves. Um, and uh, they're very important in creating that pond. In fact, that pond we have, I saw a map of it in the 1850s. It was about a third the size it is right now. And that's thanks to the beavers and all the work that they've done. It's a lot, it's a lot bigger. So uh, I saw them as also an uh, important part of maintaining the capacity. And then I was thinking, you know what they are? They're like, they're like the mindfulness trainings. They're like, they're patching up the holes. They're helping to, to make it so that I don't leak away all my energy. And my energy, my energy is, is, uh, 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 Precious in this sense, this capacity, this reservoir of practice is there. And if I'm not careful, I'll do things. I'll consume things. I will say things. I'll do things that actually help me lose energy, like a leak in my capacity. And the beavers are the practice that maintains that for the pond and the mindfulness trainings and spe specifically mindful consumption. Mindful consumption plays a big role in capacity. And, and this is something I really want to bring up for us. It's so easy for us as modern human beings to consume and consume and consume. Uh, in fact, for many of us, it's, we believe it's a source of our happiness. We actually are caught in, in a striving, in a longing, in a searching for happiness by consuming. And we're caught in covering up our pain by consuming. Right? It's so pleasant to consume things which create pleasure. Well, it's better to do that than be in touch with the places that hurt. Right? Let's just cover it up. Oh, so this is a big part of our culture, our society now, consumption. And mindful consumption is, is a practice of, of nourishing capacity. As long as I continue to consume things that bring suffering to me, I'm going to suffer. I'm sorry, it's very simple. And maybe you think, oh yeah, he's just saying something that's so like silly and, and obvious, right? But look at your life. Look at your suffering. Suffering comes from somewhere. That's the second noble truth. Suffering has its causes. It comes from somewhere. What have I been doing in my daily life that has been nourishing the experience of suffering in me? 
It's a good question for Dharma sharing today. Uh, what have I been doing? Step back and reflect. How have I fed this for my suffering, but also my happiness? Where's my happiness in my daily life? How's that doing? Have I been feeding it? Have I been ignoring it? Have I completely forgotten about it? Right? Am I just taking it for granted whenever it happens to come along? It's something that we can nourish at capacity. Right? So, what have I been doing in my daily life that is watering, touching the seeds of suffering in me? How many times do I flip open my phone or my tablet or my computer during the day and check that those suffering headlines and let that, that images, the impressions in those stories come in? I know, I know. I, I, I get caught in it too. It's, it's so alluring. It's so, it pulls us so hard. This, this fear, this tension around, am I safe? Is the world safe? Are my loved ones safe? Can I do something to stop this? Right? It pulls us into consuming more and more and more. To try to be aware. I want to know everything that's happening about the war. I want to know everything that's happening about the climate. I want to know everything that's happening about uh, racial and, and uh, justice and, and things like that. I'm so like want to go out into that. But the more I feed myself stories about oppression and suffering, about violence and fear, the more those seeds are watered in my consciousness, the more I'm going to suffer. It's, it's that simple. As long as I continue to consume the things that bring me suffering, I will suffer. My suffering has its causes. And if I just keep doing that, suffering is going to stay there. I also need to understand what to do and what not to do. Right? What to consume that brings me well-being and what not to consume me that brings me suffering. Right? What to do and what not to do in order to transform the experience. Again, this is the Four Noble Truths, looking at capacity. So when, I, when I'm able to be in touch with myself, I can understand where the suffering comes from. And when I can see a little bit about where it comes from, uh, I may be able to change the actions of my daily life, right? So I know I was giving managing and controlling a hard time before, but there's also some, some wonderful parts, you know, you, you, do we, do, we can do work there too, right? We can change the way we behave in our daily life. We can change the things that are going on, the relationships, the structures, the time spent with this or with that, the kinds of foods and drinks we eat, the kinds of people that we spend time with. We can shift that around a little bit to reflect our understanding, right? If I understand that my suffering comes from X, Y, and Z, and that I need to do A, B, and C in order to nourish well-being, right? then I can, I can change activities in my daily life to reflect that understanding. And that will, it has to, transform the situation to some extent. Depending on how deep our in insight is, there will be transformation. Mm. We can also change behaviors inwardly. 
and to nourish our healing. And here I'm, I'm speaking about another kind of consumption that we do, uh, the kind of consumption um, of our own thinking. The way we think about ourselves and the way we think about others also is a kind of food. Right? It nourishes either suffering, it's a cause for suffering, or well-being. Yeah. So if I think about myself in a way which brings suffering to me, I'm going to suffer. If I think about myself in a way that builds capacities for healing and understanding that I see myself as having possibilities and, uh, and uh, goodness and uh, beauty, then I will be bringing myself those experiences. It's, it's that simple. Um, in fact, our thinking is really powerful. And so when you do this deep looking into what, how have I fed the suffering in me? And how have I fed the happiness in me? You do it in the light, the, the light of uh, daily life and activities in, in, your, in your daily life relationships and things you're doing in your waking life outside of you, but also in this reflecting on the way in which we think about ourselves and the way especially that we think about our loved ones and those who are closest to us. Uh, there's a lot in there, a lot of good stuff in there for, for working with. The seeds of suffering are deep and old. They are our experiences, but they also are transmitted to us. In fact, I don't know that I'm really able to separate out the the suffering of my ancestors and the suffering that I have in my daily life anymore. I'm always finding these deep connections, right? So I really think that this is like a, a continuum uh, across generations of a path of transformation. The roots of the suffering that are in me are deep and old. They're from my childhood, from my parents, my grandparents, and many generations of society and how societies evolved. It's deep and old. Yet the experience I'm having is very personal. <laughs> it's like my experience, right? And it's very contemporary. It's very in, in this modern moment. Mm. Only very recently has society as a whole been able to um, allow us uh, role models in popular culture that do not fit a traditional mold. And um, the younger generations are way ahead of us middle-aged and older people now. Uh, we have to give them some credit. Um, they're moving really fast with a lot of this stuff. Uh, I guess I'm talking here about these stories of suffering that, that seem to be mine. They're my personal stories. They're not really mine. They're, they're collective. Um, 
and uh, so much of it is unconscious we don't even know that we are approaching the world um, through the bias that we are right that we have we don't we don't see it because it's who we are and what we're expressing this old stuff comes from previous generations and their ways of being in the world and and uh, so as we embrace what's coming up for us in our personal life um, it is the continuation of that old stuff we don't have to go into the past in our know how to heal our lives it has what happened in their lives has already transformed itself into what's happening in our life does this make sense you don't have to go back and figure it all out you just have to be deeply present with what's actually happening for you right now and similarly you don't have to solve the world's suffering problems that's not what's being asked by life it's a co it's a collective story and it's hugely overwhelming if you want to try and solve that that suffering all you have to solve is the way it's manifesting for you in your life right that's what we're being asked to do mm. Yeah, these stories of suffering being collective, potentially overwhelming, is, is very frightening sometimes. It's very hard to accept that the way I've been behaving in the world is a way that was transmitted to me by my ancestors and it's hurting people, right? Um, we were recently in a discussion, an order of interbeing discussion around power. And there were people who were very frightened by this discussion. It's very hard for them to understand that simply by being who they were, and they really gave everything they could, they have been giving everything they can to be like kind, loving, understanding people their whole lives. But even just by doing that from the role that they're in, as an Order of Intermeeting member, that they have power over, right? <laughs> And, and, they, and they were frightened of that, very frightened to accept that they, oh my gosh, that, that I, my, my goodness is being challenged here. Like, you know, they felt that, that personal challenge and, and the pain of like, oh my gosh, my life is connected to these deep stories of suffering, of, of power imbalances and power and uh, abuse of power. And simply by going through the motions of my life of being the best good 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 person that I can be the best person I can be I'm I still might be participating in structures that are causing other people suffering right it, it could be very scary to try to face that level of the suffering uh, it's good to be aware that it's there but the task that is given us is not to solve the huge problem of power imbalance in the world is to be present with the way it manifests for each of us in this personal contemporary experience that we're having. Mm. The, the contribution we make to humanity through our practice 
our path of healing. It's in each moment. It's the way that we breathe, the way we hold our emotion, the way we mm, curate thoughts about ourselves and others with the deepest wisdom we have, the way we focus our, our attention on having deep understanding and compassion rather than running in habit energy and striving and longing. Right? These things are happening in each moment of our lives, and that's, that's the practice. Mm. If we see the cause of our suffering, then we can see the path to transformation. And if a condition brings us suffering and we're able to release it, to let it go, to choose a new path, that's wonderful, right? And that's our own personal experience in our daily life. Uh, releasing layers of stress, releasing worry, uh, healing certain relationships, these things that seem very personal to us in our lives, they're actually very important in the world. They are all of our ancestors collectively working through us, right? Transforming through us. Mm. Yeah. So when you think about your capacity, uh, remember those intelligence that's needed to not, uh, not be overwhelmed, not take on more than we can handle, but also to always try as often as we can to to take that next step and grow, grow our capacity, become like a river handling the salt. And remember also the role that we play in our own capacity with uh, mindful consumption, uh, the way in which we consume food, drink, conversation, the way in which we take in media, the way we spend our time, the way we think about ourselves and others. This, this consuming our thoughts, consuming our emotions over and over again, right? Is that bringing, is that nourishing the well-being or is it nourishing the suffering? And if I can understand that, I have a path. A path. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe we can sing again, in, out, in deep, slow. Uh, come back to that sense of like, wait, it's so simple. <laughs> it really is so simple. If my heart is open and calm and I'm connected, right? That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm in the groove. <laughs> right? uh, in, out, deep. Slow, calm.